0: Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we'll be looking at the issue of banning extremist groups in Indonesia. In May, the Indonesian government announced it would ban the Indonesian branch of Hizbut Taria, an Islamist organisation which seeks to replace democratic governments with an Islamic caliphate through non-violent means. Indonesia is not the first democracy to consider a ban of Hizbut Taria. The organisation has been banned from public activities in Germany, and Great Britain and Australia, amongst others, have considered prescribing the organisation, without ultimately doing so. Banning an extremist organisation is a rare step for the Indonesian government, however, which has generally resisted such calls, even for violent groups. What has spurred the government to attempt to ban Hizbut Taria? What would be the likely impact of such a ban? And what are the challenges for the Indonesian government in regulating extremist speech and ideology? To discuss these issues i'm joined by sydney jones director of the institute for the policy analysis of conflict a world-leading expert on extremism in indonesia sydney thanks so much for joining us today
1: happy to be here
0: yeah and delighted to have you on the podcast i wonder if i could start by asking over the years the indonesian government has faced demands to disband various extremist groups uh, notably the islamic defenders front or fpi but hasn't acted upon them. So why is it that it's taking action against Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia now, even though it's an organization that doesn't itself use violent means to advance its goals?
1: I think Hizbut Tahrir's participation in the anti-Ahok demonstrations led to greater scrutiny of its program. In fact, I think it led to greater scrutiny of all the organizations that participated and organized the anti-Ahok campaign, Ahok being the governor of Jakarta who was accused of blasphemy and then put on trial and just imprisoned. But if you look at the ideology of his Tahrir, it does say that it intends to have a three-step program to undertake the takeover of a democratic government and that without using violence it intends to build a political base and then transform the country from within to become an Islamic State that will take part in an Islamic Caliphate Its vision of a caliphate, however, is not the same as the Islamic State's. And in fact, it's a vision of a caliphate that never existed in reality. But the ideology is clearly anti-democratic and clearly envisions a change in Indonesia's political system.
0: And I mean, when we look at the scale of Hizbut Tarih as an organization in Indonesia, is that sort of agenda something that poses a realistic threat to the democratic polity in the country?
1: I don't think it poses a real threat. That is, I think Indonesia's democracy and its political stability are strong enough that it's not going to be rocked by any particular organization, no matter how big a base of supporters it builds. There is an aspect to His activities though, which also I think has given the government pause, which is that it actively supports infiltration of the government and security forces and sees them as the hidden tool toward transformation of the system. So in the various phases of that are spelled out in the ideology, this effort to bring local officials, national officials, and security forces, especially the military, on board are very clearly there. And we've seen efforts by Hizbittahrir to influence people at a cabinet level. Uh, One example being the health minister under President Yudi in his first term got completely taken over by Hizbittahrir, and they were sponsoring her book tour in which she claimed that bird flu was uh, basically part of an international conspiracy where the united states was trying to get samples of bird flu to turn into biological weapons to use against the muslim world it's that kind of conspiratorial thinking that makes you wonder if they actually have influence over senior officials that could be a problem
0: I guess is influence from his bottary over officials, this idea of infiltration, is that something that in itself the government should be seeing as a threat or simply promotion of a particular ideology by by a group in society?
1: I think that it's different than any other organization that I know of that operates in Indonesia where they are deliberately seeking to bring officials on board so that they have effectively a fifth column from within. Now, again, I don't think there's any real danger of those efforts ever transforming the Indonesian state, but I think it it is more dangerous than other organizations that are simply trying to get supporters out in the street.
0: And you mentioned it was its role in the protests against Ahok as much or more as these efforts to infiltrate Indonesian institutions that brought it to the government's attention. How large a role did it play in those protests?
1: It's difficult to know for sure because his Tahrir itself wasn't organizationally in the alliance that called itself the National Movement to Defend the Fatwa of the Indonesian Ulama Council, which is basically the ruling of this quasi-official body of Islamic scholars that declared that, in fact, the governor of Jakarta had committed blasphemy. And there was a fatwa to this effect on 11th of October. And an alliance of Four major organizations got together to basically organize the anti ahok protests, and it included an organization called Forum Umat Islam.
0: Forum Umat Islam is the Islamic People's Forum.
1: Which is led by a man who used to be on the executive council of Hizbittahrir and can still very easily turn out thousands of hispataria Tahrir members uh, onto the streets. So while the organization in the alliance was F-U-I and not Hispataria, Its involvement basically meant that ut-Tahrir, together with the Islamic Defenders Front or FBI, were the two organizations that could turn out tens of thousands of people and did. And you could see the black flags of ut-Tahrir very prominently displayed in both the November and December uh, street demonstrations in Jakarta.
0: When you say it could turn out tens of thousands of people, is that an indication of the size of its membership base in Indonesia, or how large would it be?
1: Well, Hizbattah is a very elitist organization, so that the number of card-carrying members who have gone through the full indoctrination process is actually relatively small compared to the number of supporters. The estimate I've heard although it doesn't reveal its figures at all, is about 40,000 actual card-carrying members, but with a support base maybe of five times that.
0: So these protests have brought it to the government's attention. It has this staunchly anti-democratic ideology that is more dangerous in part because of its very active efforts to infiltrate institutions. I mean, do the potential threats that Hizbut Tahrir pose go beyond that. Obviously in Western countries, people would always look at the link or a possible link between extremist groups and terrorism. Has there been any link of that sort in Indonesia?
1: No one in Hizbut Tahrir, as a member of Hizbut Tahrir, has, to my knowledge, committed an act of violence, let alone a terrorist act. But there are several leading members of ISIS who came out of his Batahhrir. And that's, I think, another factor that's raised government concerns. The most notable of those is a man named Bahrum Naim, who is in Syria now with ISIS and who has been responsible for trying to instigate several terrorist attacks in Indonesia the most recent being the effort to use a woman suicide bomber to attack the presidential palace and he has been using some members of his old hizmetahir network to mobilize into extremist cells this included notably one of the the groups arrested on batam the island near singapore which was supposedly discussing a possible attack on Singapore although it had absolutely no capacity and no weapons to do so but i think that has raised concerns that his tahrirs ideology about the caliphate has been a bridge for a handful of his tahrir supporters to leave their organization and join what in their view is the real caliphate, not Hisbah Tahrir's rather dreamy version of it.
0: Moving on to practicalities, what do you think are the Indonesian government's chances of succeeding in banning Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia? I mean, there's quite a lengthy process set down in the law on mass organizations. Is Is that the way it's likely to try to achieve a ban?
1: I think they haven't thought it out at all. If you look at the government's announcement on May 8th about banning ut Tahrir, there were no clear reasons given, and they were except that it was anti-Panchasila, the state ideology, and there was no clear mechanism spelled out. So it's not clear whether they would go through the very long and complicated process set out in the mass organization's law, which requires three separate warnings and then bringing the case to the Supreme Court and then allowing a response and so on in a process that may take longer than six months. The alternative would be to issue what they call a regulation in lieu of legislation, which would allow the president basically to issue a decree which would have to be considered by the parliament within a period of, I think, 60 days, after which either it would be nullified or it would become law. Another possibility is for a presidential decree, but that would imply a degree of imminent danger that would be, I think, quite hard to justify. And in any of these cases, Hizbut would be able to make an appeal to the Indonesian courts. And given some of the recent court decisions, there's no guarantee that the government would win that case.
0: Given you say this doesn't seem to have been thought through before the announcement was made, I mean, is it a whole of government consensus to ban Hizbut Or can we identify somewhere in particular within the government that this is coming from?
1: I'm not sure exactly where it's coming from, but clearly the police and the coordinating minister for security, that is Wiranto, were on board in making this. I think it's got Jokowi's full backing. And the interesting thing is that... Most of the mainstream Muslim organizations hate his Tahrir. So the idea of a ban actually has very strong support from the two largest organizations, Muslim social organizations in Indonesia, Natudu Ulama and Muhammadiyah, which is unusual because there were outcries when efforts were made in the past to try and ban other organizations.
0: Why do those two organizations despise Hizbut Tahrir?
1: Because Hizbut Tahrir has systematically tried to poach their members and has succeeded to some degree in taking over not to do ulama mosques and schools, particularly in East Java. And they do so through in part moving into the mosque administration committees and offering free imams for Friday prayers and and so on. And one of the big questions is where does Tahrir's money come from? Because it is part of an international organization with a very secretive leadership believed to be based in Jordan, but nobody knows for sure. And there is central direction and central, at least some central funding to the operations of Tahrir Indonesia. And the branch here in Indonesia is one of the largest branches in the world.
0: And I mean, if they were to use the regulation in lieu of legislation, the purple, as you said, that would have to be reviewed by the Indonesian parliament. Do you have any sense of how the debate there would likely play out?
1: I'm pretty sure the Indonesian parliament would... First of all, I think it would be split, but it could well go in Hizmetafriar's favour.
0: Okay, And why would that be?
1: Because I think there would be strong support from organizations like Forum Umat Islam, like FUI, which has very well-honed political connections.
0: Into specific parties or...?
1: Not into specific parties, but into individuals from a wide variety of parties. And I think there are some members of parliament like... Many in civil society who see an effort to ban Hizbatahir as a real threat to freedom of association more generally, especially. When we're dealing with an organization which has not been involved in violence, does not believe in violence, and hasn't committed any crimes identifiable under the Indonesian Criminal Code, except for this ideology which can be seen as being anti Ponchasila.
0: I guess the public messaging we've seen from President Jokowi over the past week or so is this rhetoric echoing Sahato of clobbering organizations who violate the constitution. And I guess mixing up talk of banning ut Tahrir with talk of being tough on a communist resurgence. How effective do you think that sort of messaging has been within the country in terms of building broader support for a ban?
1: I think that people like to hear tough rhetoric against organizations that are seen as divisive, but Ultimately, it comes down to whether you can translate that toughness into actual action. And I think many people have been waiting for some kind of government move against extremist organizations that have been spreading hate speech. But in some ways, it's a problem if you move to ban the organization and still leave the whole issue of hate speech undiscussed and out there unresolved. I think to this day, it's not at all clear what the dividing line is between criminal incitement through speech directed at religious minorities and offensive but legitimate freedom of expression. And this is an issue which in some ways, is more important to resolve than whether or not you ban one particular organization. That's why the choice of legal mechanism becomes so important, because if you, if the organization is banned under the mass organization's law, one of the articles that could be used against it would be the spreading of hatred toward other groups or efforts to spread teachings that were in violation of Panchasila. And if they decide to go for spreading hate speech, the question arises, well, if they're going to go after uh, Hizb ut-Tahrir on these grounds, why don't they go after the Islamic Defenders Front, FPI, at the same time?
0: Is that a question that's being actively asked within Indonesia at the moment?
1: It's being actively asked by civil society groups. This hasn't come up in government discussions, as far as I know, there doesn't seem to be any question of actively banning FPI, but the government instead, or the police, have moved to bring pornography charges against one of the leaders of FPI, Habib Rizik. And I think maybe the idea is to try and discredit the leader in a way that would have repercussions for the organization. I don't know whether that strategy will be successful.
0: And, I mean, why wouldn't the government take on this broader project of the question of the boundaries between criminal incitement and offensive but legitimate hate speech? Is it simply too hard a debate to conduct publicly, or is it something that...
1: Yeah, it's too hard a debate to conduct, and many within the Muslim mainstream are worried about some basic teachings being then forbidden on the grounds that they were preaching against religious minorities. So I I think there would be serious opposition from some in the the conservative mainstream, even within Natadu Ulama and Mohammedia, to try and draw hard and fast lines. And there would certainly be opposition from within human rights groups and civil society that believe that any effort to criminalize expression will lead to abuse and be too reminiscent of the authoritarian days of Suharto. And I mean,
0: I guess, what is the government gaining by rolling communism into its public messaging on this ban of Hizbut Tarja? Is that something to build broader support for the ban, or reflecting a disquiet within the government that you have this smear campaign against Jokowi and his party, the PDIP, as something of a reemergence emergence of, of the former Indonesian Communist Party?
1: I think all eyes are on the 2019 election. And I think the lesson of the anti-AHOC campaign and the conviction of AHOC is that political candidates who want to defeat their rivals can make a tactical alliance with hardline groups and basically force their will by turning these groups out on the street in a way that has an implicit threat of violence or security problems if their will isn't met. And for 2019, the rivals of Jokowi clearly won't be able to play the blasphemy card. So two cards that may come up instead are trying to smear Jokowi as a communist or trying to smear him as being somehow linked to Chinese who themselves are sneaking into the country to not only build infrastructure projects and bring in Chinese workers, but to spread communism as well. This is one of the themes that you hear from groups like Hizbattah, but also from some members of the military committed to this idea of proxy war
0: proxy war being this nebulous concept of undefined foreign interests seeking to undermine Indonesia without the need for an invasion by spreading foreign concepts throughout the country.
1: By spreading foreign con- concepts, by weakening Indonesia's economy, by corrupting its youth, and by generally stealing its resources. And this idea of proxy war from the ultra-nationalist side actually is very close to some of the conspiracy theories of groups like Hizbut tahrir from the Islamist side.
0: If we were to suppose that the government did succeed in prescribing Hizb ut-Tahrir, What effect would that have? Would that mitigate the sort of longer-term risks that the government perceives the organization as posing to the democratic polity?
1: I think there are real problems with the proposed ban because it would drive the organization underground. This is an organization that survived underground from 1983 to 2000. It only got above ground after Suharto fell, and it managed to both build a base and expand throughout the country while it was a clandestine organization. So, first problem is that the organization will be driven underground and it won't be eradicated. The second question is what happens then to disaffected members? If we've already had a few members who've crossed over into actual use of violence, could this not persuade others that? violence was a strategy and one of the scary things is that one of the people who was happiest with the idea of a ban was this former Hizb-Tahrir turned ISIS member in Syria bathroom Naim who said this is just what we've been waiting for this will convince Hizb-Tahrir that they can't just sit back and dream of a caliphate they actually have to use violence if they're going to achieve it so getting more crossover into extremist organizations is also a potential problem. And then if you think the government would have to then arrest Hizbattahir leaders if they found them to be still active in violation of a ban. The question is, look at Indonesia's prison system. It can't hold very many more people, and there's already a problem of recruitment in prison. So for all these reasons, a ban on Hizbattahir could create more problems than it solves.
0: And I mean, are there any lessons that could be drawn from earlier cases where the government has looked to ban or criminalize, in these cases, violent extremist organizations, for instance, Jama'a Islamiyah being criminalized through the courts in 2008, or the announcements we saw in 2014 that ISIS was banned in Indonesia?
1: Well, there are two big differences. The first is that Hizbut Tahrir is a perfectly legal organization under Indonesian law. It is registered as a mass organization or as an association under the mass organization's law with the Ministry of Law and Human Rights. And J.I. and ISIS were, of course, never registered and never considered legal entities. So when, in 2008, Jemaah Islamiyah, was declared a banned corporation, which is the wording that they're trying to build into the new anti-terrorism law, which is not going anywhere very fast. There was no way that that ruling could be used as a legal precedent for banning other organizations. And in fact, it wasn't used as a precedent. The, The ban on ISIS was announced by the government, but it it wasn't really translated into policy. So when people get arrested for being active in ISIS, they are arrested for committing a specific crime under the criminal code or under other legislation which has been issued not by virtue of simply being a member of ISIS.
0: Does that mean there is essentially no direct precedent that we can look to to see how a ban of his book would play out?
1: I think the only existing precedent is the ban on the Indonesian Communist Party.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and we don't really want to bring that back. As I say, you know, I, the publicly, I think the ban would be quite popular, except in the in certain circles, but I think the moment the government actually moves toward a legal ban, then a lot of political opponents of the government will come out of the woodwork regardless of what they think about his Yeah, you know, I,
0: I guess still coming back to this idea of you mentioned there isn't a clear precedent apart from the Indonesian Communist Party for these use of powers to prescribe organizations. How has the government been dealing with organizations like Hizbut Tahrir to date? And would a continuation of those strategies have been sufficient to mitigate the risks that the organization poses?
1: So far, as far as I know, it hasn't made any formal moves against Hizbut Tahrir. And indeed, Hizbut Tahrir has been Treated as many of the other organizations, as as parts of the broader Muslim community that have been in you know in some ways welcomed by certain officials, uh, including at local levels, and treated as part of ordinary civil society in the country more generally. So it would be a real departure to say now, well, we've got one that's clearly different than all of the rest.
0: Given this, I guess, history of inaction, and you've mapped out the context under which the government is now taking action, does it surprise you at all that we are seeing this move to ban the organization?
1: It surprises me that we're seeing uh, such an exclusive focus on Hizbittah here. I think the government... And the Jokowi campaign team for 2019 very much wanted to defang the organizations that basically defeated the governor of Jakarta. And so they're not just moving against Hizbethavir organizationally. They're also bringing these, in some cases, almost spurious charges against individuals who were active in the organizing of the mass demonstrations so in addition to the pornography charges against uh, habib rizik of the islamic defenders front there were also charges brought against muhammad al-khatat who is the head of forum umat islam and there were charges that were originally brought and then I think dropped against Bakhtiar Nasir who was the head of a Salafi organization but also he's uh, very much uh, a member in good standing of Muhammadiyah uh, and he was accused of using funding for the demonstrations to provide humanitarian aid to Syrian refugees but those charges were eventually dropped.
0: I guess, any predictions of where this will all be by the time of the 2019 election? Is this the sort of thing that could still be dragging on by the time we get to 2019? Or one way or the other, it's going to be resolved by then?
1: One thing I've learned about Indonesia is never make political predictions, especially for presidential campaigns.
0: Sure, sure. Well, on that note, then, we'll have to keep our eye closely on how the situation unfolds, and there's a lot more I could ask you about, but uh, I'm afraid I'll have to stop it there, and thanks so much for uh, sharing your insights with us today.
1: Okay, happy to do so.
0: That was Sydney Jones, Director of the Institute for the Policy Analysis of Conflict, or IPAC. Talking Indonesia returns on the 8th of June, but the entire archive of episodes is always available at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. And we'd love for you to leave us feedback or a rating at any of those locations. Until next time, this has been the Talkie Indonesia Podcast. Bye for now.